Good morning. Thanks for staying standing. We're going to read God's Word. Matthew chapter 10, verses 40 through 42. And uh, let me just say before I read, conclusions are good. Conclusions are good because they signal an end of one thing and uh, so that something else can really begin. And, and once in a while you get a cliffhanger, but, but normally conclusions conclude. And they wrap things up. They summarize, they synthesize, they resolve a few issues and tie things together, then move on. And we come now to the conclusion of Christ's Sermon on Mission and the conclusion of this series within a series, How Believers Are Sent by God to Carry the Gospel, Being Christ-Centered People in a Hostile World. So let's read Matthew 10, verses 40 through 42. These are the words of Jesus. Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person, because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, because he is a disciple, truly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. And Lord God, we thank you that we can be here today, and thank you we could have open Bibles, uh, unafraid of being arrested for doing that. Thank you, Lord, that we can be here in your presence. We were able to sing your praises. We were able to, to pray. And, and now, if you gathered us together today, we get to open up your word, and we pray as, as uh, in these next few moments that you would teach us that you would have your way with us, that we would be yielded to you and to what you want. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Matthew chapter 10, verses 40 to 42. Jesus concludes his sermon on mission with words of assurance and encouragement. He has said a lot already as he instructed his apostles of what they might expect in the way of negative treatment out in the world. He was preparing them for real life and ministry. And he gave them a realistic, non-sugar-coated look at what they could expect to come at them. But here he ends a sobering sermon on a high note. He is giving them encouragement. He is giving them assurance that good things will happen because of what he will do. And he tells them that those who receive them favorably give evidence that they receive him favorably. Now, as we conclude, it's good to see where we've been. Some of you are here for the first time, and others, you've been with us through this series of this last six weeks. But beginning at Matthew chapter 9 and verse 35, and then moving through chapter 10, we have seen, first, the compassion of Christ that ought to motivate our mission-mindedness and our actions. We have seen the calling of God, which forms the basis of our living and giving the gospel. We have seen the character of God that he displays in and through us to make the gospel attractive to those who will believe. And we see the caution that he wants us to exercise, the courage we need to get out of our comfort zone and into engaging in courageous witness for Christ, 
And last week we saw the crucifixion to self, the dying to self that is necessary as we live for Christ. That's what we've seen so far. And so now in conclusion, reward. No C word for you. If you need a C word, call it conclusion or call it crown if you want. But it's, it's about reward and, and it, three times in this passage we see that word. Now we love rewards and we usually think in terms of what we have done to earn them and uh, what we deserve. I think about the common practice in youth sports that I've been coaching for so long and it's a practice that I'm not the biggest fan of and it's that everyone at the youngest ages gets a trophy no matter how they played, no matter if they got you know shellacked every week, a hunt, hunt, 10 to nothing or whatever, it, they still get a trophy and and. and a lot of me being so competitive just fights against that because you're, you're playing a game to win, not to lose. And that's what I tell my teams. Uh, and when you do lose, you say, uh, character building, and uh, don't get used to it. Right? Remember the feeling. So that, but I, 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 was, I was thinking about it this week. I thought, well, you know, that's kind of the way we're seeing reward today is that um, all in a certain group besides... Uh, get a reward that they might not have, uh, that they didn't earn. Now, I was thinking of the Lakers this week. I was thinking of the world champion Los Angeles Lakers who just got their rings, their championship rings. They're like unwearable. They're so big, you know. And uh, they just got these last week or two weeks ago. And, and uh, interestingly, if you, if you sat on the bench, you got one. If you're Kobe Bryant, you got one. Um, if you were hurt all season and were still on the team, you got one. Because everyone on the team got one because they, they were rewarded to, for being champions regardless of how many points they scored or didn't score. And, um, but we, we like to think of reward as what we earn for good behavior or good performance. But as we're going to see today, this is not the kind of reward that Jesus is speaking of. Uh, in, we're going to see in the context of him sending his apostles to reach the lost that he teaches that those who receive the gospel favorably are rewarded with eternal life. Those who receive the gospel favorably are rewarded with eternal life. That our sovereign Savior is the faithful rewarder of those who seek Him, of the one who pursues and serves Him by faith. And, and, and we see that in Hebrews 11 and verse 6. That without faith it is impossible to please God, and that whoever would draw near to God, whoever would come to God, must believe that he exists and that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. But let's pick it up at verse 40, chapter 10 and verse 40. And this verse begins, He who receives you receives me. Jesus is speaking. He's speaking to his twelve. And he's saying, if they receive you, they, in essence, receive me. It's a huge statement. Jesus lives in his people, they go in his name as his representatives, and therefore how they are treated is literally how he is treated. We see that elsewhere in the Gospel of Matthew, further on in chapter 18 and chapter 25 and, and in Luke 9, but Jesus says, he who receives you receives me. Then he says, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. He makes another strong assertion of his deity as he did last week by saying that all who receive him receive the Father. Receive God the Father. You receive God the Son, you will receive, you receive God the Father because the Son is equal to the Father. 
There is no such thing as believing in God the Father and not believing in God the Son. That is not possible. And Jesus is sending his disciples, and and he wasn't just the sender, he was sent. He was sent by the Father. In John chapter 8 and verse 42, we see that Jesus says, I came not of my own accord, but the Father sent me. Now, the word for sent here is is a word we have seen in this chapter, when when in verse 5 it says Jesus sent them out. Jesus then says in in, in verse 40, uh, he, he who receives me receives him who sent me. It's the, it's the Greek word apostello, and it's the common Greek word for sent. It has several usages. Uh, Jewish rabbis would use it of one who is called and, and set out as an official representative of another, such as an ambassador. Uh, the New Testament uses this term of Jesus being sent by the Father. Uh, it is used of Jesus sending believers. We see that right here. In this passage, uh, in John 17, Jesus was prayed to the Father and, and, and said to, he said, as the Father sent me, so send I you to his disciples. Uh, the New Testament uses it for disciples. Paul uses it as a title often at the beginning of his, of his letters uh, as a way of asserting his God-given authority as a representative of Christ. But Jesus, who was sent, he says, the one who sent me, is, is, was an apostle, a sent one from the Father. And in turn, the apostles are sent ones from Jesus, and they go with the authority of the Father conveyed through them. The response of those to whom they, were, they went was a response to the one who sent them, to Jesus and, ult- and also the Father. So verse 40 uh, is key. Moving on to verse 41, Jesus then says, the one who receives a prophet... Because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. And you have to ask that question, what does a prophet get? And then he says, and what the one who receives a righteous person, because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. And you wonder what a righteous person gets. But let's look at that for a moment. Uh, it expanding the, it's expanding the principle that we see in verse 40, um, that to welcome Christ's representatives is equal to welcoming him. And... and um, Prophet is one who, if he conducted himself uh, in a worthy manner, was to be treated exactly as the one he represented. He had the same authority and the same message as the person he represented. Now, Jesus uses the word received, a very key word here in this passage. It, 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 means, it means to welcome. It means to take hold of. It means to accept. And you see this Greek word dekomai uh, used six times. Now, you, you'll notice that the word receives in both the New American Standard and the ESV is, is, is eight times in, in the first two verses. But it's a different Greek word two of the times. The first, uh, first six times, it's, it's the word dekamai, and, and, and then in verse 41, two times, it's the word lambano, uh, and that means receive, but it means to take. It means to, um, to take what, what you're going to get. The other means to accept or even, even to believe. Now, we're going to see more of that in a moment, but the idea here is that Jesus, as in chapter 10, he had been focusing on the negative aspects of what people were going to get thrown at them because they were followers of him. And now, Jesus is focusing on the positive aspects of receiving rather than the negative aspect of rejecting. And think with me for a moment, uh, in the Old Testament, a prophet goes and gives a message. 
a person who received or accepted a, a prophet and his message was, was basically um, thought to be accepting the will of God. That they believed that God had spoken, that the will of God for those uh, then were, was whatever the prophet gave to them if the prophet was speaking truly from God. And it, then the connection here is that those who were going to receive Christ's apostles, the will of God for them who received the message and the message they bring and, and receive it favorably was that they would believe and be saved. They would believe the gospel and be saved. It, it takes us back to verse 40. To receive the message of Christ sent ones is to receive Christ and a person receives us in our testimony receives Christ because we are his ambassadors. To receive Christ is to receive God. Now, I'm going to tie this together. You've got to hold on with me as we go to verse 42 because this is going to come together in a few minutes. I want to get to the reward idea, but let's look at verse 42. Verse 42. Whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, and here's Jesus saying, amen, in a sense praying backwards, amen, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. And Jesus often did that. He would start and say, amen, meaning this is the way it is. This is what's going to happen. I'm assuring you, he will by no means lose his reward. So he's talking about whoever gives a cup of cold water to one of these little ones. It's a beautiful picture. You imagine giving a cup of cold water to maybe a little child or to someone who is helpless. And the reference here is to lowliness in spirit. It is Littleness in the eyes of an undiscerning world. It is, it is really pointing to believers, though we would, we would tend to think it's, it's children. Uh, but it's not stature, but status. It's not how big you are or how old you are, but what, how you're seen uh, in the eyes of the world. Now, the, that's the, the interpretation of this, is that the little ones are believers. It was an affection term that Jesus used towards his disciples, especially when they followed him with the innocence of a child and, and the faith of a child. Uh, but there are many applications of this verse, and I, and I want to just make mention briefly, but the, you know, there's many applications of the idea of giving a cup of cold water to, little, to these little ones. Um, the idea of reaching out to, to orphans. The idea of reaching out to widows who have no one to care for them. Or the elderly who cannot uh, help themselves in some way. I, I think of today, uh, we're, we're sending a group every first of the month to uh, Fountain Healthcare to do a worship service. Uh, the, today at 10.30 in the morning, there will be a group of us, a uh, group of people from Grace going to bring a worship service to those who can't get to one. And so you could, you could really apply this in, in those ways. And even the day of generosity offering we just gave, we're giving money to help churches and pastors who can't help themselves financially. And there are many around the world, not just all around the world, but even here in the States. But the idea is that you would be reaching out to those who can't help themselves. But the, 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 the interpretation the, is, is that the little ones refers to the disciples. And he used the same word in, in chapter 25, verses 31 to 46. It's a longer passage, but saying that those he sent represented him. And again, any response to them was equivalent to a response to him in person. He says in, in chapter 25 and verse 40, to the extent, and we all know this, this wording, to the extent that you did it unto... Um, the least of these my brothers you did it unto me 
And uh, he's talking about giving a cup of cold water, literally a cup of cold, uh, giving a drink. Uh, it's the smallest service. It's a gift that even the poorest people could give. And, and that cup of cold water is in the name of a disciple. There's a key there. It's not just giving water. Not just, you know, standing at a marathon and handing people cups of water and saying, ooh, I, I did what Jesus said. No. It's the idea of doing that in the name of a disciple or, or as Mark 9.41 puts it, Jesus says, because you are Christ's. That if someone helps one of the little ones, one of the insignificant ones, one with not much stature in the eyes of the world, they are serving Christ because they're doing it in the name of Christ. Jesus says in Mark 9:41, because you are Christ, literally from love to me and to him from his connection with me. And he says if you do that, you will he will not lose the person who does that will not lose his reward. So here is the the the, the word reward here for the third time in this passage. And and the key to this passage, the key to understanding these three verses and not taking them the wrong way is understanding what reward is and, and why it is given. We've got to understand what the reward is and why it is given. Jesus seems to assume, by the way, that his disciples understood the concept of, of reward in his kingdom. He didn't explain it. He just said it. Now again, think with me again about reward. Reward is usually something offered in return for some service or benefit received. I brought in my pocket today a, um, a medal. I, uh, I ran cross country and track in high school and uh, one of my crowning glories as, as a high schooler was in, as a freshman, I, I was the freshman MVP of the cross country team. I didn't play football. I wasn't the quarterback, but I was the freshman MVP of the cross-country team. And I got a trophy for it and all that. But the medal I brought today is, is the one that actually has become the most significant for me. And you're like, what, you're living 30 years after? I just, I mean, I'm, I'm 30 years out of high school. I graduated in 1980. And you're like, you're carrying around a medal from 1978? 77, excuse me, 1977. Um, uh, and, and you're living through that? Well, let me tell you why. This medal... And let me read it, what it says on the back. And if, you, if, you, if you're up close, you see it's blue, so this was a good medal. Uh, first place, first place, JV Cross Country, 1977. Now, what's significant about that? Well, I was a sophomore in 1977. But here's the problem. I went from freshman MVP who uh, qualified for varsity to JV my second year. Now, I won league, but it was JV. It doesn't count. It just doesn't count. And the, and the problem was, my co... Oh, by the way, I didn't tell you, but I was co-freshman MVP with Ricardo Estrella. And Ricardo Estrella ran varsity all that year. He wasn't first in league, JV. He was part of the varsity team. And my problem was, I was resting on my laurels. I was thinking, I'm so fast, I don't need to work. I don't need to get up at 5.30 in the morning anymore and run six miles with the rest of the team. I've arrived. And so what happened was I got fat and happy and well, in a manner of speaking, you know, I was little and skinny, but the thing was I, I wasn't as fast my second year because I didn't work as hard. So this reward is kind of like, in my mind, it's the loser's reward. It's like, it's JV for, for goodness sake. I mean, come on, you know? And, and I knew it. When I walked up there to receive my medal and all the varsity guys were watching me, I wasn't proud. I was ashamed. Now, 
Thinking about reward, again, we think of it as something offered in return for some service or benefit received. That we did something and got it. And in the Bible, you see that element to an extent. A, a reward can, can refer to something given for either good or bad acts. Okay, there's a, a positive reward. There's a negative reward that's consequence. Okay, a discipline. That's a reward and, and you get it for what you did. Um, the Psalms, they speak of, of, of the, the reward for the righteous and, uh, in Psalm 58, 11, and, and the reward of the wicked in Psalm 91, 8. Uh, we know that, scripturally speaking, that when the, when the Son of Man, when Jesus returns in glory, He will return and reward each according to His works. It's Matthew sixteen twenty seven. Now, many of you, when you saw the title of the sermon today, and you automatically probably thought of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, that speaks of varying rewards for believers. Okay, you kind of have to get that out of your mind right now because don't get hung up on that because that's not what this is about. Here it is used, here in Matthew, it is used in the sense of an outcome, yes, but it is the outcome of belief. It is the result of belief. It means what Jesus is basically saying is they believe and are saved. And it ties back to chapter 5 and verse 12. And when the Sermon on the Mount started, and go with me there, five, chapter 5 and verse 12, Jesus says to his disciples and all who would listen, in verse 11 he says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. There's the key, on my account, because of your faith in Christ. Verse 12 says, Rejoice and be glad. You know, throw a party because your reward is great in heaven. You're not going to get anything but that, that bad treatment here on earth. But in heaven, your reward is great. What is that reward? It is, it is the reward of faith. It is, it, is, it is heaven itself. It is being in the presence of God. It is, it is Jesus and salvation. The reward is given not in response to our works, but our response to Christ's finished work. God's rewards, by the way, are always gifts of grace to undeserving sinners who can only respond to Him well due to His giving them the ability and desire to respond well. Um, What do we have that we have not received? Just think of it right now in your life. What do you have that you have not received? And you say, well, I earned it. Well, how how did you get the ability to earn it? Where'd you get that gift? It's all, God is always previous. Okay? Now, C.S. Lewis, back in 1962, the, the year I was born, by the way, he wrote a paper. And I love the title of this paper. Here's the title of the paper. They asked for a paper. They asked for a paper. So here is one, you know. Um, and, and, and in this paper, I'm sure they asked for a paper on reward because in the paper entitled, They Asked for a Paper, they, he distinguishes between varying kinds of gifts rewards excuse me rewards and he said this he used an example he said uh, let's say there's a person who marries only for money so uh, a man marries a woman because uh, her father has tons and tons of money and that is his only reason for marrying her mercenary right it's only for money not for love so he says that a person who marries only for money is rewarded by the money but is rightly judged dishonest and selfish because the reward is not linked with love. But he says, on the other hand, 
Marriage is the proper reward of an honest and, and true lover. And it is not selfish desiring it because love and marriage are naturally linked. And the idea he puts forth is that the proper rewards are not simply tacked on to an activity for which they're given. You play soccer all, all season and you get a, you get a trophy. Okay? It's, not, it's not just simply tacking on a reward to an activity for which they are given. Like a trophy. But, or, or a medal. But, but they are the activity itself in, in its fullest experience. That the reward is the activity itself in its fullest experience. In, in, in one sense, that's how we can say that even now, those of us who believe are experiencing eternal life. We experience Christ. Christ in us, our hope of glory. And our hope one day of not being here anymore, but being in heaven is real. But while we're here, we live under the Lordship of Christ. And we experience a, a foretaste of that glory. The rewards of the New Testament, by the way, belong in the category, uh, the last category that Lewis spoke of, that the, the proper rewards not being tacked on to the activity that they're given, but they're the activity itself in its fullest experience. And if we speak of merit or earning rewards differently, we misunderstand Jesus. See, in verses 40 to 42, and basically, Jesus is saying essentially the same thing three times in a row. In three different ways, some people see these verses as this stair-stepped approach of reward and different types of reward. I don't see it that way. I say that Jesus is, is saying essentially the same thing in three ways. That those who receive his followers because they accept what those individuals stand for will in turn be received by God. And because, the wording because he is is literally in the name of. It, literally, the, in the Greek, the word, and that's why in the New American Standard it says, in the name of Onoma. It, it's, it's, it refers to recognizing the prophet or the righteous person or the little one for who he is as God's representative who carries the life-giving gospel of the grace of God in Christ. So the person receiving the disciple is becoming a believer. Now, what, what's the context of chapter 10? Of Jesus sending his disciples out with the gospel to preach. And that many will reject it, but many, praise God, and this is why he ends on a high note, will receive the gospel message and be saved. Which is the point of why Jesus came. It's great stuff. And so the person receiving the disciple becomes a believer and receiving or not re losing or not losing a reward here means receiving eternal life. Not some specific status on earth or in heaven. It's receiving eternal life. So Jesus concludes this, this sermon and, and, I, and I, I see some important truths for us in the way of, of implications and applications and I'm going to give you five, okay? I'm going to give you five implications or applications for this passage number one number one and, and we're going to see this really in verse 40 by implication um, number one you can't reach someone at arm's length you've got to get close enough to matter you've got to get close enough to make a difference and and um in verse 40, he says, whoever receives you receives me. It's, it's implied that there will be a close contact, that there will be a relationship. And 
you know, you might even engage in, uh, in what has become a very fruitful thing uh, nowadays, but e-evangelism, you know, you can, you can uh, engage in evangelism via text and email and, and other things, Facebook, and, but, but nonetheless, they are, they are, there is some sort of relationship being built. Even if you've never met the person face-to-face, and it's kind of weird if, if you're not involved in that, but it, it's, it's, it's true. It's, it's kind of weird, but it, it, it's true, and it's very interesting, too, is just on the whole social networking thing that bonds are, are, are built sometimes because people are, afra- are afraid to say something in person, but they're not afraid to say it on an email or a text or on Facebook. And then uh, a, a depth of relationships actually is built without ever meeting the person. And so you've got to be careful. Uh, but the idea is that there is, you've got to be close enough to make a difference in a person's life that you can't reach someone at arm's length. I mean, you can't just keep someone at arm's length and somehow think you're going to reach them for Christ or make any difference in their life. And it really refers back to chapter 9 and, and, um, and, and verses 36 through 38 when Jesus saw the crowds and, and felt compassion for them. And he said that the, that the, uh, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And, and there are few enough workers as it is who claim to have compassion, but instead there are some that try to keep people at arm's length. Why? Well, sometimes it's because of people fear they don't know the gospel, and so they don't want to get close enough to actually have to present it. And I, I don't want to—I don't want to beat you up over that. I just know that's—that's that's just a common—it's a common truth that many of us have. Uh, many, uh, reality that we live with is that we—we—we we, we fear not knowing the gospel, and we fear being rejected, and so taking the time to develop a relationship so they're not at arm's length is scary to us because we might have to get to the message that we realize we don't know and. I was talking to someone the other day that said, well, I just don't know as much about other, as other believers do. This person's a Christian. And, and I said, well, don't stay there. <laughs> Get to work. Dig in into the word and, and, and ask questions and find out. There is no excuse for staying ignorant. So the idea here is that uh, take the time to develop a relationship. And I, I've thought about you this week, and I, and I mentioned last week something about you and, and how I can see God uh, at work in you. But the other thing I, I want to encourage you with is that I, I want to thank you uh, as a congregation for being such great partners in ministry. Because I hear the stories. Uh, some people, you know, most people don't want to tell the story of what God's doing because they think, well, I don't want to be bragging. And, 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 and Rightly so, but, but we need to hear the stories of what God is doing so that we can see what God is doing. <laughs> and and, and I, I just want to say that uh, uh, thank you for being willing, as Paul was, to spend and be spent for the souls of others. Not painless, but rewarding. So the first thing is we've got to get close enough to make a difference and not keep people at, at arm's length. The second implication, and, and it, it, you see it again all, in all three verses here, but that Christians are Christ's representatives. By nature of their relationship to Christ, they're immediately his representatives. So represent well. (laughs) Represent well. Um, These verses indicate the importance of the servant of Christ as a representative of Christ, that we carry his authority and his message, that the Lord is always with us, that that to receive the message we give is to receive Christ himself. Go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and you'll see what we are as ambassadors and what God is doing in the process. 2 Corinthians 5 and begin at verse 
14, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who, for their sake, died and was raised. From now on then, therefore we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, because of this, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this is from God. God did it. Who, through Christ, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, and here's what the ministry of reconciliation is, that in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation, the gospel. Therefore, verse 20 says, we are ambassadors for Christ. We go as his representatives. God, and, and I love this, God making his appeal through us. He works in and through us. God making his appeal through us. And then it says, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's what we're doing when we share the gospel. We're imploring people on behalf of Christ to be reconciled with God, to take the cure, to receive the cure. Now, as new creations, we have a new identity. We have a new message. We have a new story to tell. We got a testimony. And because of this, we're, the, we're these ambassadors. And we've always got to be ready to give an answer for the hope that's within us. Let me answer a question that maybe some of you have in this context. How can you share Christ in non-threatening and an effective way? In, both, uh, in a way that is both non-threatening and effective because People are very sensitive when they're being talked about regarding, excuse me, talked to regarding God. It's a sensitive subject. So how can you share Christ in non-threatening and effective ways? Because people are sensitive about how they're approached regarding God. Uh, sometimes we can get so excited about our faith in Christ that we want to share it with everyone we meet. And, and our motives are good, but we can come across to people somehow, somehow as if, somehow we portray that somehow we're better. They think that we think that we're better. And we're not, we're not thinking that, but, but some people are t- turned off by that, obviously, rightly so, even if it's a false representation. I, I will say that when I was a brand new believer, I, uh, at Long Beach State, I was going out witnessing with a fellow believer, and he was quite arrogant as he approached people, and I used to cringe, but I was the, the, the newbie, and so I was kind of learning from him, and so I learned, made a list of what not to do, and when he graduated, I, I did what he didn't do, and, um, but, but, so I can understand how that that, that happens. But somebody once said that true evangelism is one beggar telling another beggar where to get bread. And we recognize where we're at. And there's nothing that should make me boastful about my faith. Nothing that should make you boastful about your faith. Uh, our faith is a result of the grace of God. So when we're talking to people, we're called to be gracious and kind and loving and patient and friendly and respectful always. But here's the thing. We cannot completely remove the offense of the gospel because the gospel is offensive to those who don't believe. And the gospel is offensive because it speaks of man's true sinful condition. You can't take that out of the gospel or you're not preaching the gospel. And, and, and the gospel is offensive because it speaks of a man's need, a person's need for repentance. And you're not preaching the gospel if you're not preaching that. And people are threatened by that. To many, to many people, the gospel and Jesus is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. But here's the deal. We should not add to the offense 
that is built into the message. And sometimes we get rejected when we're sharing the gospel because they're rejecting Christ. But there are times people get offended by our actions or treatment of them. And then there's a closed door. And so we need to get close enough to matter and we need to get along with those we're trying to to share the gospel with. It's just not going to work. One hurdle in the way of evangelism is personality conflict. Another is worldview disagreements. And all I can say is, and I speak from experience of making these mistakes, don't allow your dislike for another person or your disagreement with their views keep you from attempting to reach them for Christ. You may have some relational cleaning up to do before you re-engage someone with the gospel. You may have an apology to make. You might need to humble yourself and make amends and then trust God to give you the courage to love them enough to courageously tell the gospel story, even risking rejection, even risking embarrassment. Third thing, the third implication, and, and, and I see this in verse 41 by way of implication, but the idea is that we need to preach the gospel always and it is necessary to use words, accurate ones. If we want to share the gospel with unbelievers, we're going to need, we're going to, need to get to know them and tell the accurate truth of the message. See, verse 41 is a prophet who speaks for God the righteous person who has Christ living in them. And the idea is that they have a message they're giving and the implication is here that the message is accurately given. That the message is accurately given. But here's the thing, people can't know what you don't tell them. Last week I was at lunch and I, I met a, a, a man from China and he's a recently from China and, and I was with two of my kids and he asked me a few questions and and, uh, and then I, he asked where we were coming from. And I said, we were coming from church. And he said, oh, are you a Mormon? He's just taking a guess. I told him I had five kids, you know. I think uh, <laughs> people don't know what you don't tell them. They're not mind readers. So please don't think that I'm just going to be a witness for Christ, but I won't say anything. Well, who knows what they think you are if they don't know who you stand for? People can't know unless you, unless you, don't, unless you tell them. And, and you might be the most wonderful example in the world, and they might have you all wrong. They might never guess that you follow Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. In contrast to the often quoted and most likely misquoted and misattributed St. Francis of Assisi line, uh, preach the gospel always, if necessary, use words. Let me just say that is not in Scripture. Okay? Uh, I, what I would say is, preach the gospel always. It is necessary to use words. It sure is. Second Timothy 4.2, preach the gospel. Uh, God used words to communicate with us, and we use words to communicate with other people. It's the way he made it. You can use sign language if you want. You can even draw pictures. But get the point across in a way people can understand. Our lives must ring true. And not cancel out our words. But if we don't use words, we leave it up to them to fill in the blanks. Mere words are cheap, but God's word is a priceless treasure. We're to preach that word. The inerrant, infallible, perfect word of God. In which the gospel is found. Which is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. 
And the word does its work in those who believe. First Thessalonians 2.13. R.C. Sproul wrote this, the gospel is often given to massive distortions or oversimplifications. People think they're preaching the gospel when they tell you, you can have a purpose to your life or you can have meaning to your life or even that you can have a personal relationship with Jesus. All of these things are true, but they are not the heart of the gospel. I mean, it is easy to assume something without checking. I did that Friday when I went to brush my teeth. I mean, the thing was one, I couldn't find the toothpaste in my room, so I ran over to the kids' bathroom, and there was a stand-up thing with a squeeze thing, so I put it on the toothpaste, and I almost poisoned myself to death. It was like some curly Q hairdo <laughs> stuff. I think I can still taste it. I had to put alcohol on my brush and then peroxide on my brush. But it's very easy. I assumed without looking, this is toothpaste. You know? We can assume as Christians that, oh, I know the gospel. I'm not going to prepare. I'm just going to, well, the Holy Spirit's going to give me the words when I get there, so I'm not going to even know. Please don't go in ignorantly. You've got to know the gospel message. Um, the gospel addresses the most serious problem that we have, which is this, that God is holy and just, and, and we are not. And at the end of your life, you will stand before him and be judged either on the basis of your righteousness, which is nothing, or the righteousness of another. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. That he offered himself as a perfect sacrifice to satisfy the justice and righteousness of God. That all mankind was lost in Adam and became children of wrath under a sentence of death. And God provided a way to reconcile us to himself again. The second person of the Trinity took upon man, man's nature upon himself, was condemned for our sins, and he suffered what God's justice required. A faulty assumption many people want to believe today is that somehow God overlooks everyone's sins and gives forgiveness to everyone. Some kind of universalist type lie. And that he is not, that they think that he is not concerned with upholding his own integrity or acting in accord with his own character. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the message of who Jesus is and what he did. Don't leave out the shed blood. Do you know that most gospel presentations leave out the shed blood because blood's messy? I know when I get blood taken, I don't want to look at the little thing either. Blood is messy. Uh, it signifies death, but without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. Don't leave out the shed blood of Christ. And you're telling your testimony, don't leave out the cross. The gospel. Uh, our gospel, 1 Thessalonians 1.5 says, did not come to you merely in words, but in power and the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. What encouragement. We serve the King of Kings, Jesus the Apostle and High Priest of our calling, and He's with us as we serve Him, and the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit fills our hearts and inspires our words as we speak. Two more, quickly, two more implications quickly. Four, every Christian's testimony is significant. Verse 42, whoever gives one of these little ones, and the, you may feel so insignificant, you may say, well, my testimony's not spicy enough. It's not, it's not exciting enough. It's not, it's yours. Own it. Share it. Don't make one up. I had a friend that used to make up a really amazing one because he thought he had a boring one. Um, God has chosen 
If you're a believer, God has chosen you, and, and as one of, your, one of his chosen ones, you're his witness, and it reveals the work of God in a sinner's life that is practical to the person hearing the testimony. It identifies us with, with other believers, all coming from different life. We all have a different testimony. Every one of it's different because we're all different. But, but, but we're redeemed by one Savior who, who by grace forms us into a church. His church. But your story is needed. The world is blinded by Satan who wants to keep people from seeing the glorious nature of the gospel of Christ. And we should never be ashamed of the gospel or afraid to proclaim it because it is the power of God. Last thing. Every person's response to the gospel is important. It's important. It's life or death. These three verses, they're short, but they just, Jesus is describing the proper response to him. That receiving Jesus is equivalent to receiving God. To receive Christ as he is presented by his messengers is to experience God and salvation. Hence the main point. Those who receive the gospel favorably are rewarded with eternal life. Now, those who reject the gospel get the just reward of their error. To turn away from Christ when he is offered is to be on the road to hell. To be close to perishing. Those who reject him with finality and die go to hell forever. Apart from God, they will perish. In a a day of depressing headlines and, and uncertainty all around, good news is very welcome, isn't it? The gospel is good news. Jesus died to pay the penalty for our sins so that we might become God's children through faith in Christ alone. So I want to talk to you, as we close, I want to talk to you if you're not a believer. If you, if you aren't sure whether or not you are a child of God, you need to make sure. And let me just ask you this. Is there anything keeping you from believing in Jesus Christ? Is there anything keeping you? Most people who don't believe have a reason. They don't believe. And let me just say, if, if there's something that's in the way of, uh, that you think is in the way of you believing Jesus, I want to say this. You need to set that thing aside, believe in Jesus, then let Jesus take care of that thing. It might be that you say, well, I, I can't forgive so-and-so. So I can't become a Christian. Because I, Jesus says, if I don't forgive, I can't be forgiven. And don't wait till you can forgive the person. Receive Christ's forgiveness. You will find you have the ability to forgive. The supernatural ability to, get, to forgive. And we have trouble doing it, but we have the ability and the, and the resources to do it. Outside of Christ, you don't. You might say, well, I don't, um, I don't, uh, I can't understand the Bible, uh, so I don't understand what it's, what it's saying. Well, receive Jesus and the Holy Spirit will help you understand the Bible. Um, you might fear your family and friends' rejection. Their response to you. Well, if I receive Christ, then I'll be rejected by my family. They won't treat me um, kindly and, and all that. And all I will say is receive Jesus and you will find the courage to face any kind of reaction to your faith. The implications of Christ's words in these three verses are unavoidable. I talk about that big cross we see on Highway 40 in Groom, Texas, the biggest cross in the uh, this side of the Mississippi or whatever. And I'll tell you, it's unavoidable. You just have to go by it. You, you, can't, you can't miss it as you go by. 
The implications of Jesus' words here are unavoidable. He makes the entire position of a person come down to this one thing. Their relationship to and attitude toward him in the present world. Basically, we encounter the exclusive claim of Acts 4.12. There is no other name given among men by which we must be saved, the name of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that your words written over 2,000 years ago are the basis of, by which your followers have taken your gospel to the ends of the earth. It's because of these words that I proclaim the gospel. And so, Lord, we want to go and proclaim the gospel and in Christ's name and by his authority, say to those who don't believe, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And in your name and by your authority, we also say reject the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be lost forever. We know, Lord, that that is truth we must deal with. We pray, Lord, that you would give us grace as we deal with it. In Jesus' name.